Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to Emerging Revolutionary War, although we are stepping out of Emerging Revolutionary War today to uh, join uh, with two distinguished historians of the War of 1812. And we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart because I am a native Baltimorean. Um, it's good to talk something else besides Ravens football today, which was oh, a disaster. Uh, um, so, the Orioles won. Uh, and the Orioles did win. So, um, and they actually came back in the night. So they flip-flopped usually. Um, today, though, I'm joined uh, by Jim Bailey. He's now the Chief of Visitor Services and Education at Manassas National Battlefield Park. But uh, he is a uh, former park ranger at Fort McHenry, still very actively involved uh, with the Guard. You may see, uh, see him up there uh, for certain events like Defender's Day. And putting his reputation on the line with us uh, is Chris Boyle, who's a National Park Service volunteer at Fort McHenry <laughs> National Monument Historic Shrine, uh, both with the Fort McHenry Guard and uh, as an historical interpreter. Um, he is now a de facto Baltimorean for having lived in the city uh, for 20 plus years. So um, he just got his uh, Baltimore citizenship card uh, right. in the mail. Um, <laughs> but with that, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us tonight um, and welcome back, Jim, to the Reverie and welcome, Chris, for the first time. Cool. Thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Uh, and so let's get started uh, first. For all the listeners, uh, watchers, uh, let's get the 50,000 foot view. War of 1812. Bring it into Baltimore, Mr. Jim. <laughs> well, well, first of all, it's important to understand that the, the War of 1812 um, is kind of the, the coda to the American Revolution, right? You didn't finish it uh, in 1783. We had to come back 30 years later uh, and fight the Brits one more time. Um, but yeah, to, to get to Baltimore in September of, of 1814, um, one has to kind of go back to the spring of 1813, uh, when a very small uh, British naval expeditionary force under um, Admiral George Coburn, or Cockburn, as he became known throughout the Chesapeake, um, entered the bay and, and then spent the summer of 1813 um, sailing at will across the Chesapeake Bay, um, sailing all the way up uh, to the Susquehanna River, 
um, and attacking Havre Grace, uh, Frenchtown, Georgetown, and, and basically raiding at will <clears throat> with his small naval force up and down the bay. Uh, and that gave him a, a lot of really good intelligence as to the complete lack of preparedness um, on, on the part of the United States to defend what was really the heartland of the United States during the War of 1812. You know, uh, We tend to think of the heartland today uh, as, as being the Midwest, right? The geographic center of the country from east to west. But you have to remember in 1813, Americans thought of the heartland or the geographic center of the United States as, as running from north to south. So the Middle Atlantic, Maryland, and Chesapeake Bay, the national capital, Washington, DC, is the center of the country. Uh, and in, the, in, in 1814, um, Admiral uh, Coburn will return with a much larger uh, naval force uh, and to, to repeat what he did throughout 1813. And he'll be joined in late summer uh, by Sir Alexander Cochrane, the senior naval commander now on uh, the scene, uh, bringing the British force in the Chesapeake Bay uh, in um, August of 1814 to just about 50 warships, some of the larger ones being men of war mounting 75 guns each, uh, and an expeditionary force of 4,000 British soldiers under Major General Robert Ross. <clears throat> so Cochrane, Ross, and Coburn are going to meet, uh, and, and their goal is to raise as much havoc as possible in the Chesapeake Bay uh, to divert American attention from Canada. Uh, there's uh, definitely, um, on, on the part of the British, a sense of, of the, the need to dole out some retribution um, <clears throat> for some of the things that have happened up in Canada, uh, an American militia force burning the town of Newark uh, along the Niagara River in Canada the previous winter and forcing dozens of families out into the brutal cold of a Canadian winter. Um, but yes, so, so again, the British goal, wreak havoc, um, and basically engage in a, in a campaign of terror against the citizens of the Chesapeake Bay. So to take what Coburn did in 1813 uh, and really ratchet it up so that the, the citizens of Maryland and Virginia basically appeal to the government to end the war. And with that, I'll take a pause. Awesome. So the radium, they're in the air. So you have the Navy, the component. And now there is a infantry component with that, right, as well. That's not here in 1813, but it comes back and, and right, and these are these are battle-hardened veterans, right? These are regiments that have fought under Major General Robert Ross in the Peninsular um, War against Napoleon, uh, and and so these aren't uh, it's it, it's not Canadian militia that they're bringing down um, from from up north. These troops are coming direct from Europe. Ross himself uh, still is recovering from a really nasty neck wound. Um, his wife had begged him not to take the assignment uh, in America. Um, but uh, he, he insisted. Uh, when the, the British Army joins the Navy, as long as the, whenever the Army's on board the, the, the Navy and catching a ride, Admiral Cochrane is in charge and directs affairs. Once Major General Robert Ross lands his army, he assumes full command and control of those troops and whatever happens on land. Uh, Admiral Coburn, uh, the second uh, in command of the, of the naval forces, he will accompany Major George Ross, uh, Major General Robert Ross, on on several forays uh, at Hampton Roads, and then of course in August uh, of 1814 against Barney's American flotilla, and ultimately 
the national capital. So even though the army's in charge, the, the Navy is right there represented with uh, George uh, Cockburn and, and Cockburn and Ross um, hit it off and uh, established a pretty good, uh, pretty good friendship. So the uh, British initially, I mean, they, everyone knows what they do with uh, Washington, D.C., but they, they don't march over land to Baltimore. Is that correct, uh, either Chris or uh, Jim? No, no. It, it's actually interesting. It, it, that's actually what um, when Cochran comes on the scene in uh, the summer, one of the first things he does is uh, send a, um, I guess, an order, you call it an order out to Coburn to give him uh, an idea of, of operations in the Chesapeake. Um, he has freedom to kind of go wherever he wants, and he's not sure if he wants to go immediately into the Chesapeake. And Coburn actually, that's his um, recommendation, is actually once they hit Washington is to march directly overland to Baltimore. Um, and that's mixed by both Ross and um, Cochran, um, largely because um, the force that Ross has isn't, I mean, they have 4,000 total soldiers that they can go off of, but they don't have any cavalry. Um, and they have very few artillery. And so he, Ross doesn't want to risk marching overland between Washington and Baltimore um, and being out of, out of communication with the Navy. Um, and so uh, really right after um, the burning of Battle of Bladensburg, burning of Washington, August 24th, 25th, um, it's, it's Ross that really quickly decides it's time to go. And they start heading back to Benedict. I mean, Cochran wants them to come back and Ross is really starting to push them back on because um, Again, he didn't think it was a good idea to go trying to march overland 40 whatever miles in unfriendly territory. So they, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was just going to say that by that point, um, <clears throat> with the Battle of Bladensburg, Ross had suffered well over 350 casualties. Yeah. He probably reflected on the fact that he had fought that battle very poorly, had rushed <laughs> into it, thrown his light brigade uh, into the American lines, had, had hazarded himself. On, on the front lines and, and after the burning of Washington was probably realizing, you know, everything, everything's um, broken my way. Um, so it's, it's probably a good time to get back to the, to the safety and, and the heavy guns of the fleet. <clears throat> so that's uh, an amazing point that most people don't even realize. I guess some Americans actually did shoot at Bladensburg. You always hear that it's the, the races and they go. So, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that's 350 doesn't sound like a lot of casualties, but when you only have a 4,000 man, force and there's no chance for reinforcements as well it's also august these men have come across what three thousand miles across the water and so i mean you have those considerations as well so most people think oh from dc to baltimore unless you go at rush hour um today it's, it's not too bad of a trip but um at that time you have those considerations so you do march back where do they so from dc where do they load up to go um Back up to Chesapeake. Is it out toward like Chestertown or, or um, if I miss, I'm getting tons. They're, they're going down. They're going back south down down to the Patuxent River, um, right. and then Benedict, the town of Benedict on the Patuxent. Right. They load up on. They load up at Benedict, and the the Navy goes back down the Patuxent, and they um, are essentially rendezvousing down off of um, it's Tangier Island, I guess. Right. So they're down off of um, south off of the bottom of the Patuxent. Um, and then they also wait because they one of the squadrons that goes up the Potomac during that operation under uh, Captain uh, Gordon, um, they have to wait for them to come down because um, they go in and they force Alexandria to surrender. And then they, you know, just out of, you know, really good seamanship and, and sheer luck, they they get down out of the Potomac without really <laughs> running into a bunch of trouble from the Americans who are trying to set up a um, 
a defense up along um, the Potomac from them. And so they're delayed several days. And I don't think he comes out of the Bay until like September 5th or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, right. So they're, they're rendezvousing down South um, in the, the lower part of the Chesapeake Bay. The one thing I wanted to say before we move farther away from the Battle of Bladensburg was, was just to, to state that the American army that's assembled at Bladensburg actually outnumbers General Ross, right? There are regular troops. There are um, troops or sailors of the United States Navy. Um, you have your Maryland militia. You actually have militia from Baltimore that have, have joined um, the district militia, the Georgetown militia. Um, you have the president of the United States, the secretary of war, the secretary of state, James Monroe, uh, Francis Scott Key is on the field. You have all the makings of what could have been a successful defense of the city, except for the fact that they waited until the absolute last possible minute to call out the militia. They made no advanced plans throughout the summer of 1813 and 1814. Uh, and then tactically, once they're on the field, those 6,000 troops are spread out over three different lines that are not in um, supporting distance of, of, of one another. So what could have been um, at Bladensburg, unfortunately, um, was, was not. And so Ross was able to fight a very poorly executed battle and still win. That's not going to go the same way right. um, outside of Baltimore. So it sounds like Bladensburg, they were trying to recapture the magic of Guilford and uh, Calpens from the American <laughs> Revolution. But... Uh... James Monroe smelled black powder. You yeah. know, he had flashbacks to being a young, you know, aide de camp uh, and just galloped onto the field. And, you know, when the Secretary of State tells you to post over there, you said, okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. So he, uh, there it is. James Monroe smelling black powder. Uh, you've heard it here first. Uh, that's, that's what changed the course of Bladensburg. So um, myth busting, Jim is here. Um, so you come up. Um, so uh, the borders. So when does, I guess, the Americans understand that it's Baltimore next, or is that like the logical thing? I mean, they're down in Tangier, Chesapeake. I mean, there's many places they could go. And so Baltimore, why why Baltimore? Jim, you want well, to take so, that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, two things. Um, I think from the night of August 24th, 1814, you know, in, in Baltimore, they can see an orange glow on the southwestern horizon. They know what that is. Right. They know that that's Washington, D.C. Clearly, we have lost. Um, so you don't know where the president is. You don't know what's going on with the secretary of war. Um, you, Baltimore realizes, hey, we're on our own. Fortunately, again, for throughout 1813 and 1814, the city fathers, the mayor, uh, the Maryland militia, everyone's been having these conversations about what to do, how to prepare. So once that happens on the 24th of August, that goes into into effect. Um, and every day, more and more steps are being taken. Meanwhile, while Baltimore is convinced that it is next on the British side, they're they're planning to pack up. Cochrane um, is feeling like, hey, you know, D.C. was great. Let's not press our luck. Um, you know, I don't want to get stuck in the Chesapeake Bay if a, if a hurricane uh, comes up the capes. Um, and so he's initially um, thinking that Hey, we're gonna we're gonna bug out. Um, it's the and he fact actually even he even he even goes and begins ordering the fleet to disperse. Right. Um, and that that's another piece of it is that he's he's ready to go um, because he has um, again because he can go kind of wherever he wants to go. He he's indecisive, and so 
um, he wants to leave and um, again, orders that, but then at the, at, I'm sure Jim was going to jump into this as well, is that, you know, he changes, his mind is changed or he changes his mind. I think that the, it's really unclear as to exactly how that happens, but um, he's convinced well, there, or he, yeah, or he's convinced. I think there, was, there were two things really that kind of caused Cochran to, to change his mind. Uh, one was he realized uh, that at that, at that point, um, the, the tides were not favorable for trying to get the fleet out um, of the Chesapeake Bay, right? Um, so it's like, okay, we need to hang around for another week or two. Uh, the other thing was as they are rendezvousing with um, Gordon's fleet from the, the Potomac and, and he's getting ready to kind of uh, um, throw the towel in, the HMS uh, Menelaus, which was sent up the bay towards Baltimore, comes back um, with the news that there's, there's basically nothing at Baltimore, right? The eastern approaches to the city are open. There's no entrenchment there. There are no forts other than Fort McHenry. Uh, and the captain of the HMS Menelaus in a tender um, actually seized a boat laden with fruit within gunshot or a mile and a half of, of Fort McHenry. Yeah. So this, this intelligence, you know, for Cochrane, it's like, well, I got to hang out in the bay anyway, you know, until the tides uh, are, are, more favorable, are more favorable for getting um, the fleet out. Um, and, and it looks like Baltimore is even less prepared than, than Washington. So the change is made. Everyone is recalled that had already been dispersed and they start beating their way up the Chesapeake Bay. Um, so the, the key is that it ends up being just over two and a half weeks between the burning of Washington and the British attack on Baltimore. So during that time period of British indecisiveness and then, you know, making their way back up the bay, Baltimore every day has been acting as if the attack is imminent. It's going to happen the next day. So troops are pouring in from all over um, the state. Uh, volunteers are coming in <clears throat> from Virginia and Pennsylvania. Uh, entrenchments are being dug east of the city. Um, naval heroes uh, like Commodore John Rogers, Oliver Hazard Perry um, uh, are coming into the city. Uh, and, and so you know, Baltimore, <clears throat> if you read the newspapers, it, there's a big ebb and flow you know, from day to day. One day, you know, there's, there's a lot of esprit de corps in the city. Everyone kind of take notes, takes note of that. <clears throat> and then the next day, it's all despair and, 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 uh, and uh, gloominess. And everyone's depressed about their, their chances. Um, but that key is that time. <clears throat> in that time, entrenchments are dug. Um, I mean, you literally have bricklayers um, making ovens behind the trenches. You have bakers uh, that are coming out using those new ovens and just churning out thousands of loaves of bread. Um, you have other citizens who um, are preparing bandages, uh, don't, you know, um, stockpiling pickaxes and wheelbarrows and shovels for the digging of those entrenchments. They're filling cartridges and ammunition at Fort yep. McHenry, you know, because most of them are putting up loans. Right. Most of the well, militia that shows up, especially those that are coming down from Pennsylvania, they're not, they don't have any, you know, some don't have equipment or they, they don't have ammunition because they were assuming that they would get it when um, they would get there. It's funny. It's, it's sort of not to jump ahead, but it, it, the same thing happens in 1861, right? With the beginning of the civil war, but you know, the militia shows up and they're not sure they don't have what they need. And so, you know, this is all being put together over this two and a half week period. 
I don't know that they've heard about the Civil War and emerging Revolutionary War. No, no I'm not sure. It hasn't happened no. yet. No, <laughs> that, um, yeah, we uh, we always try to say, when will a Civil War reference make its way into one of these Red Wars? So we yeah. made it 20 minutes right now. Yeah, right now. Um, <laughs> but before we leave completely, and uh, this guy does go from D.C. to Baltimore, we did have a question come in. Uh, you mentioned Francis Aki being on the battlefield of Bladensburg. What tactical advantage possibly did he bring to the battle i think it's none disadvantage disadvantage there uh he's just a member of what one of the the georgetown militia or, or one of the he had, he attached himself as a voluntary aide de camp um to the uh i believe it was the georgetown militia so, yeah. So, yeah. so he, there it he, is. he was well known you know he was he was a well-respected lawyer everyone knew him i mean he wanted to Every, everyone knew everyone in, in D.C. Uh, and, and in Georgetown in 1814 um, because it was it was such a tiny it, it wasn't even a city. It was a town. Uh, so it's kind of like when James Monroe comes up and, and, and orders troops. Everyone knows who James Monroe is. Everyone knows who Francis Scott Key is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that he had much of much of an impact um, negatively, but certainly no advantage. <laughs> so there you go, Cecilia. No possible disadvantage more than advantage to right. uh, to the calls. But uh, eventually, he makes his way to Baltimore too. So everyone's headed to, headed to Baltimore. Well, so, uh, he so key um, key does make his way to Baltimore, um, but not to be part of the defense of the city. <clears throat> he goes to to Baltimore to meet up with um, John Stuart Skinner, who's the American prisoner of war exchange agent who operates out of Baltimore on the Ferguson packet line between Baltimore and Norfolk uh, because he's on a mission to find the British fleet and to seek the release of an American civilian by the name of Dr. William Beans, a man that Key knew very well, uh, whose friends had come to, to, to Key and, and said, that, hey, look, the British on their way back from the burning of Washington, D.C., they seized Dr. Beans for what they believe was interfering um, with their orderly withdrawal. What Beans had really done was he had gathered up um, some other Americans from the town of Upper Marlboro, and they had gone out and uh, corralled or arrested British stragglers who had been breaking into homes and, and farms and, and, and things like that. When Ross, when one of the soldiers escaped and made their way back to Ross, Major General Robert Ross, he was incensed and ordered the arrest of Dr. Beans. This is very concerning uh, because the, the, the British could then, um, if they wanted to initiate um, you know, a new campaign throughout the Chesapeake Bay to start taking civilians and holding them for ransom. So the, the government's very concerned about, you know, what this portends. Um, but what it really comes down to <clears throat> is a personal mission um, on Key's behalf. He, he gets all the necessary um, authorities from the, from the State Department to work with Skinner. And then he leaves Baltimore, um, I want to say on September the 5th or 6th. I'd have to look that up, honestly. Yeah. Um, while preparations are underway for the defense and then finds the British fleet. So he is now coming up with the British fleet and Dr. Beans back to Baltimore. And so now we're in the Baltimore. Everyone knows, I mean, Fort McHenry and who uh, guards that. And we're going to see if we can avoid another Civil War connection when we talk about (laughs) if the commander of Fort McHenry comes up. But the militia, um, so uh, they're busy building defenses. Are there defenses on that peninsula to begin with um and so we talked about who is in command of the, the maryland militia because they're pretty pretty well no, no names in maryland military history correct mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, so what happens is um, it's major general Samuel Smith is in command of the third division of the Maryland militia. And so he's tasked with the defense of Baltimore and it actually creates a, a, a controversy over command essentially, because the, he's not in, he had not been called into federal service. He's a militia officer and the commander of the 10th military district, which is all of Maryland, um, DC and Northern Virginia is brigadier general William Winder. And um, so Winder obviously is in command at Bladensburg, and we just discussed what happens there. And so in the interim, what happens is the um, military authorities in Baltimore and the civilian authorities in Baltimore approach Smith, who had been all throughout 1813 um, preparing the defense of the city and asked him to be in command. Uh, and, and basically he says, well, he doesn't have the authority. And so they go and um, go to the governor um, who is Governor Levin Winder, who just so happens to be the uncle of General <laughs> William Winder. Right. Um, and, you know, to try to figure out what's what's going on. And what happens is the reason that Smith is not, all of Smith's troops are called into federal service uh, when the British show up outside of, um, you know, in the Patuxent in August, except for Smith himself, because if he's brought into federal service, he'll outrank Winder. Um, and so he's not called in, but all of his troops are. And so after the, again, the debacle at Bladensburg, um, they kind of go over his head and um, the governor, Governor Winder again, um, approaches Smith and basically says, well, I don't have the authority to call you into service, but when the militia were called in, we were supposed to choose a major general for, to serve in the Mar Maryland troops. That's going to be you. And Smith basically takes that as, okay, well, that's good enough for me. I'm going, you know, I can take command. And so by the time Winder, and he actually, what Smith wound up doing is he sends a, a letter to Winder and says, can you send all the Baltimore troops back to the city? And, oh, by the way, I'm taking command in Baltimore. Um, and so when Winder shows up, it's, this is a, a big issue. And, and Winder, there's a long thing that goes back and forth and it's too much for probably an hour to talk about, but um, there's this back and forth between Winder and, the Secretary of uh, State slash Secretary of War now, Monroe. Um, and Monroe basically tells Winder, you need to, the good of the country is at stake here and you need to, you know, play good. And so Smith is in command. But very, very quickly, I mean, again, this is like August 27th or August 28th, they begin digging these defenses and they're going to dig about a mile um, of defensive works to the east of the city, um, basically anchoring on um, the Patapsco River down in the, if you we had a map up, if you're looking at a map, it's the neighborhood of essentially Canton. And it goes up and over this rise of hills to the east called Hampstead Hill. Um, and then it curves over and the entrenchments actually end um, essentially where Johns Hopkins Hospital is today. And so in 1814, this is the eastern outskirts of the city. This is beyond sort of the developed area. Um, and, um, you know, Smith basically, um, not by putting all of his eggs in one basket, but, you know, based off of the topography and where the British are, are to pick are, you know, assumed to have land the, the area down at North point on the Patapsco neck with the Patapsco river on the South and the back river on the North is sort of a natural um, landing place. And that's really the, where he had expected them, the British to land. And so that's why they put most of their um, work. And so in the, in the matter of this, again, two and a half weeks, um, they're digging all these entrenchments. They're, um, they're uh, mounting heavy artillery. So the Navy that comes in um, you know, under Commodore John Rogers, they're mounting again um, in essentially redoubts um, along the line, they're mounting heavy naval guns. Um, and then the entirety of the um, 
uh, Baltimore City Militia essentially has one whole regiment of artillery. And uh, a good number of those companies are also um, in those entrenchments. And so um, along that arc, right to the east of the city, you have, um, I'm forgetting how, it, but it's you know, what, almost like a hundred um, artillery pieces. And, you know, by the time the British show up in the river on September 11th, um, Smith has about 16,000 militia um, soldiers. Again, the, the balance is the Baltimore City Brigade under uh, Brigadier General John Stricker. And these are probably the best trained troops in the entire state of Maryland. And th they might even be the best trained militia in the entire country at the time, by, by the time this is happening um, in, in 1814, because they've been because <laughs> they've been training all throughout 1813, all throughout 1814. They've been training alongside um, the regular army at Fort yeah. McHenry, um, both their infantry and their artillery. Um, and again, they're bolstered by the Baltimore County militia um, and um, uh, Hartford and Cecil County uh, is another brigade. And then there's what one whole brigade of Virginia militia, about 2000 or 2,500 troops. And then there's um, some Pennsylvania militia. I forget the numbers, but again, all in total. About in a thousand total, Pennsylvanians. Yeah, he's got about 16,000 yeah. total um, that he has in really well done entrenchments. Um, you know, again, primarily to the east of the city. And let me uh, put a plug in there first. Uh, Samuel Smith uh, has uh, knows how to be in tight spaces. Yep, yep. Uh, mm -hmm. Mud Island and up there uh, during the uh, Revolutionary War with mm -hmm. as the British come up, um, Fort Mifflin, uh, of course, the Red Bank uh, as well. Um, and then John Stryker's uh, father commanded uh, some of the Maryland line during the uh, revolution and fought right. in places like Princeton and so forth. Yeah. And I also have to put a plug in because John Stryker is born right where, almost right where I'm sitting here in Frederick, Maryland. So yes. um, there's, there's my little plug of plugging Frederick into uh, the discussion tonight. But yep. well, I believe that um, Smith, he was like one of the last, uh, one of the last guys to evacuate Long Island with uh, Washington. Right. Yes. And I think he's also at White Plains before, before, uh, uh, he's wounded at Fort Mifflin, right? Yeah, shell comes and hits. <clears throat> I think like um, he's sitting in the one officer's quarters and hits the like brick fireplace and like knock, knocks into him or something. I think that plays into this, right? That you know, Smith Smith is part of the city's preparations throughout 1813, 1814. Smith has been working with Major George Armistead at Fort McHenry in 13 and 14. He's the one that pushed um, Stricker's Third Brigade, you know, to train heavily at uh, Fort McHenry for, for 13 and 14. So by the time there's this brief command um, crisis with um, Major um, or, or Breeder General uh, Winder coming up, there's really no contest, right? For the, for the governor of Maryland, for the city authorities, so like Smith's a Revolutionary War veteran. You know, he was an aide-de-camp to, to George Washington. This guy knows his business. Whereas Winder just lost a battle for the Capitol. Um, Smith has been has spent two years working with us. He knows everybody. Uh, and Smith has the endorsement of the regular U.S. Army officer in command of the Harbor Defenses, George Armistead. Um, he and Winder will eventually pass things up to the point um, where Winder can take active service um, of a brigade under Smith. And he's eventually put out on the Western Defenses over near Federal Hill. And what is uh, what was then called Spring Garden, what today uh, was the scene of a terrible defeat, uh, Ravens Stadium, um, before before his brigade of uh, Virginians and, and U.S. Cavalry are called over to the Hampstead defenses um, when the British approach. So 
that's a, a segue from the British approach. They do, uh, they come up, they uh, land at um, North Point, correct? Which is now a state park. That's where they land. Or is yeah, that- there, is, there is a state yeah. park there, but it's actually a county park um, county. where they uh, where they actually land. Yeah, like the state park it, is a little farther up. And okay. part of it's actually the uh, location of what uh, uh, Fort Howard. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's part of that's there, and so they they swing. It's Old Roads Bay, which is was used it used to be a lot bigger before um, uh, Sparrows Point, Bethlehem Still, and everything sort of made the the bay smaller and all their expansion. But they they come in there, they land um, there, uh, they arrive there on basically the evening of the eleventh, and basically and. Um, it's at the 11th where Stricker is ordered out. And so he takes his brigade out um, and they arrive um, out in the essentially where the battlefield is in the location of the Methodist meeting house and um, like eight o'clock or something at night on September 11th. And the um, British troops start landing at about three o'clock in the morning on the 12th. Um, and it takes them a long time. Um, the, the whole, the, the interesting thing about, again, you know, obviously we're getting into the point where we're talking about North Point. The interesting thing is, is a lot of what the whole, the overarching strategy is, is the, it's, you know, these things are not happening in a vacuum. Basically the British um, land march from North Point up to the city is supposed to be operating in consort with the naval bombardment. So the Navy coming up the river and bombarding the harbor defenses. And so at least the initial plan is that, you know, Ross's troops are supposed to land, you know, in the morning of the 12th. It's only about 15 miles to or so to the outskirts of the city. And the idea would be that the if they didn't run into any trouble, that the army would be in the outskirts of the city ready to um, engage whatever defenses they came up against at the time that the bombardment was supposed to begin on the morning of the 13th. And so that these these actions would would happen at the same time, because um, and obviously Cochran, they and they don't get a good look at the harbor defenses until they get up close to them. Um, but the idea is that they would the army is going to need the support of the Navy to um, soften up the defenses and hopefully draw off some of the forces from either the Eastern defenses to reinforce Fort McHenry or the opposite. They might have to send troops from Fort McHenry over to the, the defenses. So if they're hitting both parts of the city at the same time, um, they would um, uh, be hopefully be more successful. And, and, and um, what happens is obviously the, the engagement at North Point um, really throws that off um, and, and makes it so that the, you know, the, um, the British are late essentially in the army is late in getting to the city. But anyway, they landed through about three o'clock in the morning on the 12th. And it, it takes them a while because they don't they don't start marching up the advance brigade um, and, and Ross sort of accompanies them. Don't start marching up until about 630 in the morning. Um, and it's a slow progress because they're they don't know who they're they're going to come up against. And, and again, um, going back and this account comes from. Um, well, it's Lieutenant George Gleig. He's a, um, a lieutenant in the 85th Light Infantry. And his account, he talks about how we really felt the want of cavalry because they don't have a force that can go out in front, screen or, or reconnoiter the, the approach. And so the infantry has to do that. And so what is supposed to be a relatively quick march um, is, is, is taken a lot more cautiously. Um, and so, um, although Stricker, on the other hand, when you know his troops get 
to the what becomes the battlefield again the night before. And so first thing in the morning, he begins putting his troops into into line, and he's in, he's expecting the British to hit them in the morning. You know, at you know early in the morning, and you know the hours sort sort of tick by in the morning of the of the twelfth, and um, he's getting reports back from his cavalry. Um, you know, when he gets there, he pushes the cavalry out down the neck, and you know their job is to start. Um, sending back information as, as the British are coming up and he's getting the information that, you know, the British are, they're marching, whatever, and that, that they stop um, and they're not coming up and, and Stricker really gets angry. I mean, if you think, if you read his, if you read his report and, and sort of um, what happens afterwards, he's, he's really upset that, that the British are not sort of attacking him the way that he's anticipating them. Um, you know, because the March just takes a whole lot of, a whole lot of time. Um, uh, uh, Colonel Brooke is, uh, you know, again, another character that comes up um, in his, um, I think it's his diary. He talks about how um, it's so hot. I mean, it's so hot even early in the morning that his soldiers are falling out, um, you know, in the, I'm just waiting to march because they're waiting on the beaches essentially off of North Point, just waiting for everyone to get off the ship so they can go and his troops are, are falling off. And so he actually requests Ross to sort of hurry, allow him to hurry up his his troops so they can at least get on the road and get into the woods, so they're not you know just out baking in the sun. Um, but yeah, that's the overall plan. And again, it's a, the the whole idea is they're they're supposed to try to hit Baltimore from both the land and engage the engage the harbor defenses basically in in consort with one another, and that doesn't happen. What so we know what's supposed to happen. The best laid plans always go awry in time of war. So what? <clears throat> how does the action in North Point begin? Um. So so essentially, what happens is so Stricker's Stricker's plan is um he wants to his goal is to essentially slow up the British advance, um, check their advance and for force them to to go into battle before they get to the city. Let them know that you know. If they want to take the city, it's going to be a fight. And so his initial plan is he he sets his line up where he has his um, they're basically in the, in the area of the intersection of um, law or North Point, the North Point Road and the Trap Road, which is the main the sort of the one main intersection in that road uh, network. Both roads lead to the city. Um, the North Point Road is the most direct road. And so he sets his troops up there with one of his regiments, the fifth regiment on the right of his line. Um, again, probably his best regiment. They're all volunteer companies from um, the militia, and they had been at Bladensburg. Um, and the left of the line is he has a 27th, and he has his artillery as six um, four pounders um, under Captain John Montgomery, who is not only the captain of this artillery company, he's also the attorney general of the state of Maryland. So um, it's you think about all these people that are coming out to the defense of the city and the state. He's the attorney general. Um, they're lined up there about a mile and a half further down the road, closer to where the British are coming, are the uh, his riflemen. And behind him, he initially places um, his two other regiments, the 51st, which is his largest regiment, and the 39th, which is his smallest regiment, and a line of about... I forget, Jim, what is it about? It's about like a few hundred yards behind, but they're actually placed um, in uh, the commander of the 51st talks about this is they're placed actually in, in open at intervals so that um, the first two regiments can, when they retreat, can pass through 
the 51st and 39th, the 51st and 39th then close their ranks and engage the British. Um, and then he has a third line as a reserve, his, his fifth regiment, which is the sixth Maryland, um, all the way again, about again, you know, another half a mile behind the second line. And so his plan is, is the riflemen are supposed to get, bring on the engagement. The first line, the fifth and 27th are supposed to fight. They'll fall back. The 51st, the 39th will fight. They'll fall back and all, all, um, um, you know, uh, Rally, rally on, on the on the six of the back of Cook's yeah. Tavern. And I think so, it's important too yeah. to, to, to know that the main line of the fifth and the twenty seventh and the artillery. It's not only at that important road junction, uh, but it's also where the North Point Peninsula is at its narrowest, right? So <clears throat> both of Stricker's flanks are anchored by um, the water, which in theory could be dangerous on his right flank or the British left flank because the British could bring up small craft um, uh, and attack. But I think he's gambling that they're not going to be able to maintain that kind of, of, um, of coordination, which, right. which, which they can't. And, uh, so and that, the placement of his line is, is pretty brilliant. And I think they had spent, you know, Smith and Stricker had gone out in 1814. They'd gone up and down the North Point Peninsula and they had already decided like, this, this is where it's going to, if there's going to be a fight, this is where it's going to happen. That's where it's going to end up. Right. And things kind of go uh, bad, um, not bad, but it, they it go against his plan very early because what happens is as about somewhere around about 10 o'clock in the morning, his riflemen start streaming back in um, and they get spooked because they think they're getting flanked by, um, as Jim was just mentioning, they're, they're, they're anchored on Bear Creek and they think that they're, uh, the British are coming up Bear Creek. And it may have actually been that there were because at the same time, the um, uh Cochrane's fleet is coming up the Patapsco and they're sending out boats to keep in communication with the, with the British. And so it may have been that they're there, but anyway, they get spooked and Stricker thinks there's not enough time to send them back out there. So instead he posts them onto his right of the line to the right of the fifth to anchor that flank. And again, time goes on. And finally about one o'clock, uh, right before one o'clock in the afternoon, he gets a report that the British have stopped at the Gorsuch farm, which is about a mile and a half down the road, and they're having lunch. And again, this sort of Stricker gets angry. Yeah. And so he, they have sort of, he calls again, some of his officers and they decide to send an advance party out, um, a, a small about, I think of 150 guys. It's basically the riflemen, um, two companies of the fifth and um, some of the cavalry and one, one artillery piece um, get sent up and they're gonna go and, and sort of um, f try to flesh uh, flush them out. Um, at the same time, this is all happening at the Gorsuch farm. Uh, the reason that the British stop is because they, they're waiting for the rest of the column to catch up. They've been marching all morning. And um, at this point, uh, about three American um, militia artillery or cavalrymen get brought in and are interviewed by Ross. And Ross says, well, where are the Americans? And they're saying they were just up the road. He said, how many of them? They say there's about 20,000. Ross asks, well, who are they? Are they mainly militia? And the, the cavalrymen say, yes. And this is a, apparently where Ross says, well, I don't care if it rains militia. Um, and so he puts the soldiers back on the road. And in this, in these woods, the, uh, to the east of, or to the west of the Gorsuch farm, the advance party of the Americans run into the advance party of the British and they start skirmishing. Um, and this is where Ross comes up. And Ross is on horseback and he rides up to the front of the advance guard to see what's going on. And he, um, Coburn's with him. 
and their staff officers. And he turns to go and say, I'm going to go and call up the rest of the first brigade, their, their light brigade. And he's hit with a musket ball um, that hits him in the, in the arm and it passes into his, um, into his body, falls off his horse. Um, and so this is the opening shots. Of, this is the opening couple minutes of the skirmish that precedes yeah. the battle. Um, and command turns over to Colonel Arthur Brooke and Ross is going to die uh, or will die um, within a few hours. Um, and so um, th- again, this is sort of early afternoon um, and there is there's take there takes time is taken for Brooke to get into command and then move up the the uh, advance party comes back um, and um, you know Stricker at this point Stricker adjusts his line and he actually calls um, he calls up first the 39th and have them come up on the left of the 27th um, and then uh, to extend his line because uh, as the British are coming in they begin to start probing around to his right. Um, to try to to try to see what's going on on the flanks. At this point, Brooke is now in command and he's trying to figure out what's in front of him. So Stricker pulls up one of his regiments and realizes that he needs to extend his line further. And he calls up the 51st and the 50. This is where things in the in the history record starts going going bad. But the 51st comes up and they kind of mess up the maneuver. um, And there's a little bit of a of a thing going on. But while this is happening, the American artillery and the British artillery and rockets are trading fire. So there's this artillery duel that goes on for about a half an hour um, while, you know, the British are really getting into position. Um, and so, um, that, and so and that's huge. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about six, four pounders. So that, that's a pretty broad front. They're right on the road, uh, right, um, right, right at the road intersection between the 5th Maryland um, and, and the 27th. Um, so, you know, the, the heavy casualties that the British army suffers, you know, it, it, I, I would say the majority of those do most likely come from um, the American artillery, yeah. even, even, even being four pounders. Mm-hmm. Um, British would write um, that they're essentially, you know, they're firing um, grape or, you know, an, a, a War of 1812 version of, of, of canister, which is a bunch of scrap metal <clears throat> rammed down the barrel. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, and, the, and the British have a, about an equal amount of, of um, artillery, but they have uh, the rocket, um, Congreve rocket um, battery that's with them. And so rockets are shooting off over everything. The artillery is dueling and whatnot. And, and the 51st sort of makes this. So there's two stories that happen here. Stricker says the 51st messes up the maneuver. The, the commander of the 51st says, no, I, do, uh, I got two different orders and they contradicted each other. And so either which way. Stricker extends his line and basically he puts the 51st at right angles to the 39th so that they're, they're facing off toward back river, um, not facing toward the British, but they're catching all of the art. They're still catching all of the artillery and the rockets um, as the British are moving around. Um, Well, I think it's important too, at this point to note that if you are the 51st, um, you've been in the rear of the, of the line. You're, you're not on the main line with the 27th and the 5th. So the 27th and the 5th, they, they can see the British Marines, sailors, and, and soldiers moving off, you know, 100 yards um, a, a away, you know, despite the, the smoke of the artillery um, and, 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 and whatnot, they at least know I'm here and the enemy's there. Uh, whereas in the 51st, you're looking at the backs of the, of the 27th and, and the 5th. Right. So I, I think that 
psychological component is is huge. You're seeing casualties from the front line being brought back to you, right? Um, you know, so there, it's it's this faceless foe. And then when you are moved off, you're not moved towards the front. You moved off to the left. Like, well, why? What's going on over here? And then when you are in position, your vulnerable right flank, you know, as you feel, is off towards the enemy, and you're kind of facing off into this marsh. Um, and what I had read, Chris, too, is that the 39th and the 51st also try to make their maneuvers at about the same time. Right. You know, so some of the units get commingled, and and this just goes to show how how important it is to have that that drill that that constant you know repetition that muscle memory so that when orders are given people instantly re respond because on the battlefield um things will get will get crazy and hectic because of terrain um and the um the the fog of war yeah it's so when when brooke finally launches his attack so he he finally orders his attack for it about three o'clock in the afternoon and by this point the 51st sort of has melted away um, the part of the British plan is Brooke, Brooke comes up and he sends the fourth uh, foot along to flank the American um, around to the right to flank the American left and the light infantry are put into the across the front of the battlefield the 44th foot is in line behind them um, and the Royal Marines and the a, a naval, a naval brigade of about 600 um, sailors are positioned basically to uh, put pressure on the fifth and the riflemen and I think the 21st is the other regiment and there. They take a lot of casualties because they're just in column in the road. Um, their, their job is to push through the American line once it falls. And so Brooke pushes this attack and the fourth starts coming around to the right and pushing on this corner where the 39th and the 51st come together. And apparently the 51st fires like one volley and they run away. Um, they would, they, I mean, to fire that volley, yeah. they would have been probably firing at an extreme at, right oblique. Exactly. At an enemy they could barely They can't see. see. And part of the 39th goes, goes away too, and it actually leaves two guns of the artillery that have been sent out there on their own. And the commander of that, those two guns has to pull his guns off the field. Um, so Stricker has to then fight the battle with basically two and a half regiments and his riflemen. So it reduces his strength by a lot. And so he's taking on 4,000, 4,500 British soldiers with Summer, I think he says somewhere around the lines, he only has about 2,000 men in the line. Yeah, I think um, by, by the time those, the, the, the 51st and that battalion of the 39th uh, pull back, uh, it's, it's down to about 1,400, 1,500 yeah. men on the main line. Yeah, and so, and they, they're sitting toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British for about 45 minutes or so um, before it becomes clear that the, the pressure that the British are putting on them is, is too much. And again, Stricker's job here is not to defeat the British army. His job is to slow them up. And he figures it's time to go. And he starts pulling, up, pulling his men off the, off the field. And the British, you know, again, take the field. And they, they take one or two of the guns or whatever. And I think what's one of the testaments about how long the Americans actually stay on the field is that the British don't capture a whole lot of Americans at Bladensburg. They don't, they capture some, but they don't capture a lot. They capture a lot of Americans at North Point because the Americans stayed on the field long enough for the British to close on them. Um, and if you read the British accounts, it's like, it's this route. The, the Americans melted away. They ran away. You know, Stricker says, you know, we, we pulled, he pulled his men off the line and, and whether it's not parade, you know, or anything like that, I'm sure there is obviously some confusion, but um, 
I, I think when the British come and say that they routed the Americans and drove them from the field is, is a bit of an overstatement. I think that the, the Stricker's men did well by him and, and, and is a real testament to their, to their training. And again, also just, you know, they have the realization that there are more militia behind us. We are not the only line here. Um, and Stricker's men fall back in, in relatively good order. Um, and about that evening, they're going to pull back closer to the American defensive lines yeah. um, to the city, and they'll post themselves um, just outside of um, the main line on Hampstead Hill. Um, and I think so, it's really important to, to remember that these, you know, are yes, they're uniformed and they look like regulars, but they are citizen militia, right? These are not regular army troops that have been in multiple battles. Although during the War of 1812, being in the regular army was not necessarily a, a recommendation for uh, combat effectiveness. <clears throat> um, you know, and, and, and keep in mind that up until the war in the militia, you know, that meant, you know, anyone between 18 and 35, and you would muster twice a year. And those musters, you know, are, are basically, you know, getting the uniform on, doing some drill, parading, all the families coming out and having a picnic, you know, generally one of the musters is, is on or around the 4th of July for that reason. Um, <clears throat> so in 13 and 14, when they're assembling at, at, at Fort McHenry and going through, through these maneuvers and through the roll calls and the daily routine, um, yeah, it's more than, two, than twice a year, but it's not like they're called out for six months at a time. We're talking about a weekend here, a weekend there. Um, so the fact that these citizen soldiers <clears throat> would never, with the exception of the fifth, um, had not been under fire before, hold for essentially 90 minutes. Um, and, you know, during a good proportion of that, you know, are grossly outnumbered. Um, it's simply amazing. The, I mean, the American army does far worse uh, at uh, places like Chautauqua and Chrysler's Farm, where they outnumber the, the opposing British army. Yeah. Um, they, they perform far worse. Uh, and are picked apart by uh, an inferior fo force um, far quicker. Uh, so, so the Battle of North Point um, perhaps tactically could be called uh, an American defeat, but I mean, it, 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 is, it, it is truly amazing um, that they stood as long as they did, especially when you look at what happened at Bladensburg. Um, I, I don't know about you, Chris, but I, I personally attribute that to um, all of those musters that they did at Fort McHenry in 13 and 14. I think that inspired a lot of confidence in their NCOs and their yeah. officers. It got them used to moving. Um, I think, you know, and that, that shows where, you know, the, the, the 51st being in that open order and then under fire, having to close up and move at the same time um, was probably what, what did them in and the other, the other regiments, you know, handled themselves so well because they started in position. And they didn't have, they didn't have to move. Yeah. You know, they only had to move right. front to back. They didn't right. have to cut across the battlefield <clears throat> yep. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Now, as we, uh, like always, we're starting to run a little bit short on time <laughs> here, but uh, you put uh, historians together and this is what happens. Um, now, did we have a question that did come in after North Point? None of these uh, militia troops will go to Fort McHenry, correct? They all go to the defenses of Baltimore um, itself, right? Correct. Yeah. And and their job is basically Stricker's Brigade. And then and by this point, as Jim had alluded to earlier, uh, Winder is called up and their job is to uh, Smith orders them to sort of hang out. Um, again, if you if you're from Baltimore, if, if you look at a map, 
um, look at uh, uh, US Route 1, which is Bel Air Road. Um, they're kind of hanging out around there, um, just to the east of there, to prevent now Brooke and his troops from flanking the American line. Um, and the, the British are going to spend most of, again, throws off the timing. Um, they don't leave in the battlefield until the morning of the 13th. And so they don't arrive into the outskirts of Baltimore until around, you know, late afternoon of the 13th. And the bombardment's been going on for, you know, five, six hours by now. Um, and they actually, they actually press some of their skirmishers out and reconnoitering parties out to within a few hundred yards of the Bel Air Road. I mean, they, they get pretty far into what's today Baltimore City. Um, yeah. bef- you know, and so that's where that's where sh- those troops at North Point end up. They're they're protecting the uh, line from being flanked by the British. Yeah, at first at first they're on the far end where there are no entrenchments, basically refusing the refusing the line uh, and being bent back when the British try to kind of look up at, at Bel Air Road. And when they realize they can't flank the uh, American line, um, the, the British contract uh, into a tighter formation to assault the entrenchments. And they move in very close. And when they do that, the uh, the brigade of Stricker and Winder, which had been refusing the, the the flank, then moves over and threatens the British right flank, um, which I think is um, a very important maneuver because Brooke sees that. You know, if I advance against this heavily fortified entrenchment with thousands of troops and artillery, I now have roughly. 5,000 men in two different brigades on my flank who can come in at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they don't, while the, while Stricker's men don't fire, you know, um, in, in that capacity, I think it's important to, to note that, you know, as, as um, Chris had said, you know, they reach, they reach the battlefield of North Point on September the 11th. Those guys aren't, 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 you know, sleeping very well that night. They get there, they realize that nobody brought any of the camp kettles right uh so there's there's no way to cook any of the food um so they fight the the battle of north point you know after really not sleeping you know they 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 grab what breakfast they can then they withdraw back to the entrenchments and they're on alert the night of the 12th into the 13th and then throughout the 13th on to the 14th they're doing these brigade maneuvers in the pouring down rain yeah um so again these are these are citizen soldiers these are militia and yet for several days, they're they're um, operating um, with basically no sleep um, and no rations, uh, and and they equip themselves um, uh, very professionally. Yeah, one of the one of the guys. I mean, just a quick quick thing. One of the guys who's actually whose name is on the battle monument um, is not killed um, at North Point, but he actually collapses. Um, when the when the brigade gets back into the city, and he collapses in, in the street. Um, I'm, I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head, but I can't, but his name is on the battle monument. Um, and it, it, again, so the same thing, cause they're out in the field for, for, you know, three, four days. Um, you know, um, so you can understand why in the years and decades after the, the, the battle of North point and the war and the attack on Baltimore, that the, the old defenders, as they were called, were, were revered by um, by the citizens of Baltimore. And so well into the, the end of the 19th century when the last of them die. And uh, you made a mention of a, a monument. That was, we have two uh, kind of two final questions and we can take final comments. Uh, one is, what is there to see if people want to go out to North Point? 
Um, and so they start at Fort McHenry and that way they visit their national park first. Um, and then you guys mentioned a lot about um, things that you pulled. What's, or what good books would you recommend or um, where should people start if they want to read more? So first, let's go with the easy one. What is there to see at North Point if someone wants to venture out? There's a really nice 7-Eleven that marks basically where the where the fifth fifth regiment's right of the line was. There's a there's a very small uh, port. It's a it's a state battlefield park. It's owned by the state of Maryland. Um, so there is, and it's a basically it is where the uh, I think it's where the 27th. 27th, is. yeah, right, yeah. It, right it's their battle line. Um, there is the Battle Acre, um, which is just a, about 50 or so yards de- further down the road, and and the Battle Acre is where. Um, essentially where on the battlefield there had been a log cabin that was standing um, and it was in the front of the fifth and during the battle, the, the fifth Maryland, one of their companies sets fire to it. Um, and so it's not an obstruction. And so that property is, um, uh, is set aside much earlier, like in 1839 um, when there's a, a, a dedication for a monument there, uh, the monument's not actually built. And so there is, there is a small monument with, I think a cannon on it. Uh, but that's really all that's there. I mean, if you had gone there up until the 1950s, it would have looked pretty similar to what it was until it got developed. Um, but most of the, unfortunately, most of the battlefield is gone. Um, yeah, the, the road, the road network is the same. The road intersection correct. is still yep. there. Uh, so you can stand on the battlefield and, and look across at the 7-Eleven and the road intersection and be like, oh, that's where the six four pounders were. Right. Um, but essentially what is the state battlefield basically preserves where the 27th stood and then behind them. Um, so, you know, you're looking into the back of a, you know, post-World War II, you know, 1950s, um, um, row home community. Um, and you're looking into a back alley. So you can walk it, you, you can walk the American line over to Bear Creek, um, and, and, and see, you know, the, the the kind of the five fingers of, of the Creek that, that featured into the battle. You can't go over to Back River and the marsh because it's now a landfill. Um, so I, I think your point, uh, Chris, uh, um, Philip, to, to go to Fort McHenry and start your visit there is, is helpful because you can talk to rangers, you can look at a map, and they can pinpoint where to go. Um, if, if you're going and you've never been and you don't really know what you're looking for, you, you'll probably find the state battlefield. But outside of that, um, the little kind of loop on there, um, you're not really going to be able to find yourself in specific um, places where things, where things happen. It's, it's really something you kind of want to walk with someone or, or talk with someone before you go. Yeah. And there's also a small little monument for what the first contact or whatever. It sits right outside of a, yep. I think a garage or something. Yeah. There's a monument there. to a, uh, Aquila Randall. Um, and that's placed basically where Aquila Randall is in the opening skirmish. He's in, uh, mechanical volunteers of the fifth Maryland. And so he's killed um, there. And there, there is a roadside marker where Ross was um, mortally wounded, but it's been moved a few times. And it historically was not that far from where the Aquila Randall monument was, but that, but that one, yeah, it's, it's down off of the road. Um, Again, it's, it's in somebody's yard. Um, And so it's not, um, again, if you had visited there, 75 years ago or more you, it would have been a whole lot more open but um there's there there's a monument at the where the methodist meeting house was and that's again where the uh, troops are usually bi- that's where they're bivouacking on the night of the 11th and it's used as a as a field hospital the day after the battle um and it's where um 
one of the American surgeons um, will go down there um, after the battle is over um, to collect the American wounded. Um, they're paroled on the field. The, the soldiers that are actually captured, many of them are uh, are taken out and some end up in Halifax, Nova Scotia and are released at the end of the war. Um, some are um, taken to Bermuda and they're uh, released in like November. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot there left, um, which again, I think is today is why a, a lot of cases it gets overlooked because you can't, uh, you can't visit it and, and really envision what's going on. You really have to, you have to, you have to either walk yeah. around or kind of look at the different places where you know that the soldiers would have been or where the British were marching and whatnot. It used to be the focus of Defender's Day. Defender's Day is a Maryland state holiday, September 12th, the Battle of North Point. Uh, and that was kind of the focus of the anniversaries uh, and the gathering of the veterans throughout the, the 19th century. A couple of things happened that changed that. Uh, one, as you got into the late 19th and early 20th century, a lot of those veterans are gone. Uh, two, you have a new uh, really national song, the Star Spangled Banner that comes into its own during the latter half of the 19th century, you know, even, even earlier with the, with the Civil War, um, and then becoming the national anthem in the early 20th century. And then, of course, the creation of, of Fort McHenry National Park, which is later redesignated as Fort McHenry National Monument and Historic Shrine, uh, which is why post-World War II, North Point has kind of fallen off the radar to the point where it ends up being developed. It's just a travesty, but such, such is the fate of, of many a battlefield. Um, as yeah. far as books go, um, there are um, a, cup, a couple of pop popular narratives uh and then there are a couple of kind of hard to find um collections of primary sources so the first one uh is the british invasion of maryland 1812 to 1815 um by william marine um and it's been republished republished several times my version is is from 1965 but the, the british invasion of maryland by william marine um, that's got a roster of all the militia and some of the original accounts. Um, another great one is from the Naval, the United States Navy, the Naval Historical Center. And that's the, the Naval War of 1812. It's a documentary history. It's primarily naval documents, but because Baltimore was a combined operation on both the American and the British side, it has not only um, American naval accounts, but it has also all of the um, militia accounts. Yeah, the the I mean, there's a couple of, again, sort of secondary, you know, secondary sources and more um, modern um, works. You have um, Walter Lord's book, Dawn's Early Light, which really I'm, I'm sure we both have it behind us. Yeah, the, the book um, of the Lord. Right. Um, and then St uh, Stephen Vogel's book, um, Perilous Fight is new. Um, there's another book. about. I recommend this one. It's really good. The, the, the interesting thing is that there's not that many because it's not this massive battle. There really aren't that many um, uh, accounts. I mean, you have Stricker's report. You have, uh, again, most of what we know and most of what we think we know is coming from a British source is Robert Gleig. And I know Jim's probably going to plug something that he well, there's I'm sorry. No, there's there's other primary sources that have just never been published. Um, well, you, or you've been don't doing exist. research on that. You've been yeah. going through finding all these these letters in yeah, pension newspapers of 1814, like <laughs> yeah. you know, as officers of the 51st defend themselves. Yes. And basically blame 
Stricker. Well, and so you, you essentially have this, he said, he said, right? Stricker has the last word because he's the, the general writing the report right. and the officers of the 51st have to resort to writing letters in the newspaper. Yeah, um, and all the senior officers of the 51st, like one is cashiered and then the other two resign, the field officers um, after the battle. And it was all, um, again, the, the, the court of inquiry, none of, all of the people in the court of inquiry were all Stricker staff officers, um, apparently. Uh, <laughs> after the, the end of the tail end of the war, um, Stricker's, um, uh, aide de camp uh, is named as the new lieutenant colonel of the 51st. So the, it's the politics of it is really interesting yeah. about what happens. But <clears throat> unfortunately, there's just there, there's not a lot of great. Um, it's not a well studied battle um, in depth from a military perspective. Um, and so uh, I'm sure there's a lot that can be learned about, you know, if if, you know, more sources are found or more you know, primary documentation are found, but a lot of stuff, again, is there's newspapers accounts, there are um, clippings, again, I've, I, again, research that I've been doing in looking at um, soldiers that were wounded because they were in um, the federal service, they were um, eligible for federal pensions. And so um, soldiers were wounded, you know, in the years after the war requested um, pensions. And so in that you get some documentation as to maybe like what happened to them. And, and even then it's, it's really scant. Um, which again is unfortunate because we, we get a good macro view of what happens, but um, there's very, very few um, at the micro level of, of really the, the individual person's experiences of what happened at North Point. And with that, no, we appreciate it, gentlemen. Um, any final yeah. closing points? I know we could probably go on. We might have to have a, another War of 1812 uh, Zoom here um, in the future. But um, before it does cut us off and we go too far over the hour mark, um, Chris and Jim, any last final points? Um, visit for, if you've never been to Fort McHenry, visit us. It's, it's, a, it's a great park. It's um, uh, we, again, we just had Defenders Day. I'll do my plug for, for Fort McHenry. Um, and again, I, I think one of the things that we, we've been trying to do is tell the, the story a little bit more broadly. Um, but if you have not visited, you have not explored out the areas around um, whether the American defensive lines were in Patterson, what's now Patterson Park, or gone out and looked at the, um, you know, the battlefield at North Point. I mean, again, there are resources. Go and check it out. It, it's it's um, you're not going to see a whole lot much, but I, I think that the, the, you know, the, the people who defended the city when they did in the summer of 1814, they would, they would thank you if you did it and went and, went and, and saw these places. I, I would only add to that, um, you know, I think Baltimore is a case study of the value in preparedness and personal relationships uh, and wargaming. <clears throat> um, especially juxtaposed to Washington, D.C., where none of those things took place. Uh, and I think that that preparation, that training, that wargaming, that inner service, uh, cross-training with regulars and, and militia were really the keys to Stricker's success um, at, at North Point. And I, and I would say it is a success, you know, despite having to withdraw. He knew that from the beginning. He wasn't going to stop the British Army. Um, but yes, um, to, to echo what, what, what Chris said, um, the revolution and the Civil War get all the play 
but the War of 1812 has the sexiest uniforms. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to end on and that. On that uh, yeah. So uh, thank you, everyone, for staying with us tonight and joining uh, this talk about the War of 1812, Battle North Point. Uh, thank you, Chris and Jim, for both uh, take, lending your expertise. Um, I, I learned a lot, and the comments are coming in as well, that it was very informative, and people are looking to get out and see what there is to see. Um, uh, put a plug in. We're back in two weeks on October 2nd for the next uh, Rebel Reverie. Pay attention to the blog to see what that topic will be. Uh, this Saturday in Alexandria, the world turned upside down, uh, is the third annual Emerging Revolutionary War Symposium. Um, so uh, check that out. And then in November, there's still a few bus tour tickets left. Uh, if you want to see where the formation of the American Army, uh, we'll even talk maybe a little bit about Samuel Smith as well, uh, plugging in uh, there. And so just head over to EmergingRevolutionaryWar.org. Otherwise, we'll see you guys in two weeks. Once again, Chris, Jim, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure and a, and a great experience. Yeah, thanks. It's been Happy fun. To be here.